experience raising kids to understand that we shouldn't give them everything they want, right? Like, I think we can all agree on the fact that kids need to, to be told no from time to time. They need to realize that just because they can desire something doesn't make it a good desire. Just because they can want something doesn't mean they need to have it. I, th- I think we can all agree on that. Most of our kids, I think, left to themselves, most of our kids would probably want to spend all their time watching other people play video games on YouTube. I don't even know what that's about. It just, it just blows my mind that, that hours and hours of time are being used so that a child can watch another, maybe an older child or even an adult play video games. That's, I, I don't get it. I'm, I know I'm old and out of touch, but that's okay. I think if they were left to themselves, they would probably pick to eat nothing but junk food, ice cream and candy bars. That would have been my diet of choice growing up. Uh, luckily, my mom didn't let that happen. I think, I, I could be wrong, that if left to themselves, I think that our kids would love to just live at home forever so that we'd always do their laundry, always pick up after them, always pay their bills, and just keep on doing what they've always done. So I, I, think, I think that we can all agree that our, our, our kids needs parent, need, need parents who are willing to train them. Need parents who are willing to teach them, to show them error and to show them what's right, to encourage them to do more than just what's easy, like eat vegetables, you know, or at least take a vitamin, maybe play video games yourself, or better yet, get up, get up and go outside and look at the world that God's created, live in it a little bit. Oh. What you may be realizing as I introduce this sermon from the passage that I read is that James thinks something about desires too. But he's not talking about our kids. He's talking about us. I don't think we like to think of it in these terms. I don't think we often slow down and stop to think about it in this way. I don't think it's always pleasant to consider this, but... Whether we like to think about it or not, we need to, in relation to God, we're more like our kids than we want to really admit. A lot of our desires and a lot of our passions and a lot of the things that we would just do if left to ourselves can lead to a lot of harm. In fact, if you think about the verses I just read from James, he has some very strong words to say about our desires, about our passions. He points to them as the root cause or the root problem when it comes to division and disunity in and among God's people. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So James is teaching us this. He's confronting us with the the reality of the problem of our own selfish desires so that we can see them corrected. Christian, this is the point. This This is the main idea. 
The person given to the pursuit of selfish desire instead of the Lord will be unable to enjoy him, his peace, or his people. Let me say it again. The person given to the pursuit of selfish desire instead of the Lord will be unable to enjoy him, un- unable to enjoy the Lord, un- unable to enjoy the Lord's peace, or unable to enjoy the Lord's people. If you are pursuing your own selfish desire, if you're pursuing your own passions, as James says, you will not know the life that God intends for you. Remember the context. I, now I know that a lot of you are visiting today and you weren't here with it, but, but just listen. The, the context is important here. James has just, in the previous pa- passage previous to this, he has just differentiated between what is heavenly wisdom and what is worldly wisdom. He has shown us the, the contrast of not just the types of wisdom, but he's shown us the, the ways that they work out in life around us. He, he's shown us that, that earthly wisdom brings about, it, it, it's caused by jealousy and selfish ambition. And it brings about disorder, that's chaos, and every vile practice, that's sinful activity. So these, these selfish desires, these passions that burn within us, this jealousy and this selfish ambition, when it, when it, has, its full, when it has its full effect in and among people, it's going to cause quarrels and, and fights. On the other hand, he contrasts that against the, or, or the heavenly wisdom. And heavenly wisdom, he said, brings about good conduct. And in verse, chapter 3, verse 18, he says it produces a, a harvest of righteousness and peace. Two radically different results driven from two radically different sources of desire. James asked the question because he knows we need to hear the answer. He knows we need to consider the answer. But here's, our, here's the difficulty. So in our Bibles, we have all these headings that, that help us study. We have all these numbers and, and, and breakdowns. And, 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 and we're, we, we can move on from this passage about wisdom that's in the end of chapter 3 and move on into chapter 4 and begin to think about quarrels and fights and not see how the two are intertwined. James wants us to see he's not starting a a whole new topic. He's carrying on and helping us see how the world's wisdom, driven by selfish desire, driven by selfish ambition, driven by bitter jealousy, driven by the passions that are at war within us, it does a lot of damage even in and among God's people. See, he knows that in pursuit of selfish desires, this is the... the point he's making in pursuit of selfish desires, we pursue, we're pursuing our own pleasures. We, we are orienting our lives around what we want. We're, we're shaping our lives and our time and our efforts and our energy on what we want. Well, what happens when the person standing next to you does the exact same thing? And the person next to them does the exact same thing. And then compound that, multiply it by 100, multiply it by 200, multiply it by 1,000. What, what ends up happening? You have 1,000 different people going 1,000 different directions. We can't possibly be united. We can't possibly walk together. Even if our paths cross or run parallel for a period of time, we won't be on the same path. James wants us to understand this. 
He wants us to see that in the pursuit of selfish desires, we'll only find ourselves perpetually dissatisfied. Look at the words he uses. Look at the ways he says these things. First, let me just call your attention to the word passions as as it's translated in the ESV. I'm not sure what translation you're reading from, but the ESV calls it passions. That that word in in the Greek is the same word we get the word hedonist or hedonism from. And and, and that's a pursuit of pleasure. It's someone whose life is just about living the good life. I just want to have a good time. I want everything easy. I want everything good. And he's suggesting that that person will never know, truly know, pleasure. The hedonist, the person who runs after pleasure and nothing but pleasure, will always have a war within them. You see that in verse 1? What causes quarrels and, and fights among you? Is it not that, this passion, that, that, that your passions, that your hedonistic pursuits are at war within you? That doesn't sound like the, the life of a person who knows peace. It's not the sound of a person who knows contentment. There's always internal struggles. There's all this internal uh, uh, pressure and challenge. He says your desire, you, you desire and you do not have. In verse 2, you desire and you do not have. Later, in, in just another few verses, another few words, he says, "You covenant and cannot att- you covet and cannot obtain." And then he says, as he s- turns and talks about prayer, "You ask and you do not receive." This is not just a person who is always internally at strife within themselves. This is a person who never has or never gets what they want. I do not think that he's painting the picture of someone who is satisfied. I think he's painting the picture of someone who is perpetually, who is always, only, ever dissatisfied. Always looking to the greener grass. Well, that didn't do it. So I need this. That didn't do it. So let's run after this. See, none of these sound to me like the the life of pleasure. R. Kent Hughes, he's one of, the com- one of the commentators I'm reading from. He wrote the Preaching the Word commentary, I believe is the name of it. Uh, he, he quotes a guy named Dr. Samuel Johnson. Now, I've never heard of Dr. Samuel Johnson, so I had to look him up to even see if I wanted to bring a quote from him. But he is an old English writer, an Anglican, uh, not a pastor, but, but uh, had some good things to say. And he wrote this in the 1700s. Of all that have tried the selfish experiment... Let one come forth and say that he has succeeded. He that has made, made gold his idol, has it satisfied him? He that has toiled in the fields of ambition, has he been repaid? He that has ransacked every theater of sensual enjoyment, is he content? Can any answer in the affirmative? Not one. It was true when James wrote this letter that no one pursued in, in pursuit of their own selfish desires, their own passions. It was true then that it would not lead to satisfaction. It was true in the 1700s when Dr. Johnson wrote this. And believe it or not, even in our enlightened state, with the ability to flip on YouTube and watch someone play video games, it still doesn't work today. Listen to me, Christian. Well, listen to me, everybody that's here, but but specifically the Christian, hear me. There is something better to pursue. Something better to give your life to, another way to find satisfaction. 
If we continue to pursue our own selfish desires, we'll only ever find ourselves dissatisfied. James helps us see that we'll also only find ourselves at odds with the Lord's people. Well, how does me running after my desires, my own passions, cause problems within the church? I mean, it's me. How does it affect everyone else? What causes quarrels among you and what causes fights among you? These are strong words. Strong words. I mean, I'm not just saying, this isn't just a little argument. The word quarrels could just as easily be translated as war. What causes war and what causes fights among you? And then he says, you, do, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, I don't think he's talking about literal murder in the sense that you want something and so you kill to get it. Although that's not out of the question. We know that that kind of thing happens. It's not that that's never happened in the history of mankind. But I don't think that's exactly what he's referring to here. I think that he's talking about this willful opposition to run after your own thing that you're no longer concerned about the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ. John, in writing his first letter to the church, says that if you hate your brother, you, that you've murdered him. It, he equates hate, a willful opposition, not working for someone's good, a willful decision to, to work against someone. He equates that to murder. Is this kind of thing possible among God's people? Is, is, is he really writing this to Christian folks? Like, Christian people, we don't do that, do we? Yeah. We absolutely do. We absolutely do. See, the thing is, is that as a Christian, the, the one thing we've really done as a Christian is profess that we're sinners. The one thing that God's done for us is said, you are justified. You are forgiven fully of your sin. You you, you will never be able to be more righteous in God's eyes than he has said you are today. You are justified. You are, what that means is you are innocent. You are forgiven of all your sins and all all your sins, past, present, and future already. When God sees you, he sees the righteousness and the goodness of Christ we already are all of those things. But we are not yet all that we will be. We are not yet standing here in glorified bodies without a sin nature that is dragging at us. Without an old man that is constantly nagging at us and warring against us. Peter talks about these passions that wage war against our Soul. Yes, I am a living, breathing, innocent Seth. Yes, you are a living, breathing, innocent child of God. That's what I, not, I'm not just a Seth. I am a Seth, but I'm a child of God. You are a child of God. But what you are today is much different than you will be when, the, when Christ returns and comes and makes the mortal immortal and he takes your your old body and he disposes of it to put you in a body that is made that has no sin has no desire for anything but his glory we live in this already but not yet place and so as much as we long for the good james is writing this to a bunch of christian folks because we still struggle with the bad still struggle with all of the difficult. 
And he wants us to see that there's another way. Here's the root issue. You know, our problem isn't that we have desires. Our our problem is that we're more concerned with our own desires than the good of the person sitting next to us. That's what James is saying. Let's walk this out a little bit. It's Mother's Day, right? So this is as close as you're going to get to Mother's Day sermon as I'm about to do another family illustration. I don't know a mom in this room that that wants their kids to grow up and and be bad kids or to to not be obedient or that that doesn't love her children. I I don't know one. But you know what the term mama bear means. You know, you know how moms get really defensive of their own kids. I think dads do the same thing. I felt it in my own heart when I think my kids being taken advantage of. Man, I feel this burning, this welling up inside of me to stand up and defend them and make sure that nobody takes advantage. It's a good thing. It's a noble thing to be committed to taking care of and protecting and, and considering your children. God gave them to us and a responsibility to us to ensure that we raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, to to teach them and train them and remind them of who he is and what he's done in the world and what he's offered to them. He's given us a responsibility. But what happens when we get so focused on our family that we can no longer consider our brothers and sisters family and what's good for them too? In fact, I would suggest that it happens all the time in the church. We're so worried about mine, my four, and no more that oftentimes we forget that we're part of a much bigger family. That we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And and the truth is, is that if we're really going to walk together in unison in some way, if our desire is that our families do good and that our families are taken care of, then then I have to either convince you that my family is more important or you have to convince me that your family is more important. But if our primary focus, as noble as it is, is first and foremost making sure that my family is taken care of, then what does that automatically do? That makes us about different things makes us about different people. And even though it's a noble thing, it drives a wedge right between us. See, the thing is, I don't even think that inside the same house you can really get to a place where you don't see this happening. I've never, this is my experience, not scientific. I have not ever done a poll. Just in my 15 years of of leadership in and around the church the last 11 years doing pastoral ministry here. I I don't think I've ever witnessed even a mother and a father who are not divided at times over how to raise their children. There's always a measure of compromise, lots of compromise. And most often, maybe, maybe you're the one couple in here. Maybe, maybe there's more than one of you sitting there thinking, nope, we're, yeah, we're together. I'm glad for you. Lord bless you. you. You don't know what you have. You know how many fights happen, how much mediation takes place between couples who have kids thinking that's going to solve problems. And all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute. This has just increased the challenge. 
See, even noble pursuits, when they're selfish pursuits, cause a lot of problems. Even in the church. In fact, James would have us see that it doesn't just cause passively affect us. The pursuits of our selfish desires actually pit us against one another. Quarrels, which could be wars, fights, murder, covet. So you, so you seek to take, you know, I mean, what in the world is going on? The pursuit of our selfish desires, it doesn't, it doesn't just cause trouble for us internally. It causes trouble for us here in among our, our God's people, in, in our brothers and sisters with Christ. But, but James doesn't stop there. He shows us one other aspect in which it affects us deeply. And that's our relationship with the one who, the, the very one who would be able to satisfy us, bring us joy and, and provide for us the very things that we need that we could know the peace that we all desire. And he does that by... By pointing to prayer. People not regularly praying and people not rightly praying. You do not have because you do not ask. It's the picture of a person who doesn't regularly pray. Who doesn't seek the Lord for help. Doesn't seek the Lord for provision. Doesn't seek the Lord to, 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 to bring what he knows is right and good. And there's a lot of reasons for this. I, 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 don't, I can't tell you all the reasons that you're not praying or that you might not regularly pray. But I can tell you that I think at the very core, at the very center of all of it, at the very root of the issue is the reality that we don't know who God is. We've forgotten that God is glorious and great and good and gracious. We have forgotten that he has said, call me father. We have forgotten that he is always longing to give his children good gifts. In some way, we often treat him as someone who we're supposed to impress. And so we don't want him to help us. We want to earn our way and we try to do things on our own. And so we go without because we won't ask him for it. We don't pray regularly. When we do, when we do pray, we don't pray rightly. In verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. We ask with selfish desire. So, so the very thing that, that's causing us problems, these passions, this selfish desire, this pursuit of pleasure and, and life on my own terms and, and seeking pleasure wherever my little heart desires invades our prayer. And so we ask, and when we finally do sit down to pray, we ask God to give us what we want without any concern of whether it's really good or whether we really need it or whether it's, it's just selfish. Like good parents, the good father that he is, God loves us enough not to give us everything we ask for. Believe it or not, this is his mercy. He, 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 he's better than all of us at being a parent, so he knows. He, he, sometimes he gives us what we ask for. He says, yes, here it is. Sometimes he withholds from us what we ask for. He says, no. And sometimes he says, wait. See, he knows what's best for us and he knows when it will be best. So, this isn't a picture of unanswered prayer. I I don't think there's such a thing. 
This is not God ignoring your request. This is not God not able to hear your request. This is not God in some way deaf to your request. This is God flat out saying no. Because just like you know your kids need to be told no, he knows that you need to be told no. You do not get what you ask for because you ask for it with selfish motive. You're just seeking to pursue selfish desires. So you find your prayer life lacking and unproductive. You find your prayer life not, not complete in, because you don't pray regularly and unproductive because when you do pray, you're only seeking to see God as a Santa in the sky that if I ask him, he must give it to me. That's not what prayer is for. See, the Lord knows that you don't need to be given everything you ask for. He knows that everything you desire isn't necessarily a good desire. He knows that there are some things that's best if he never gives you and leaves you wanting. I think it was Tim Keller I heard say this. I don't know if this is, I'm I'm 90% sure this was Tim Keller. He said that, that God gives us exactly what we would ask for if we knew all that he knows. In prayer, God gives us, every, gives us exactly what we would ask for if we knew all that he knows. If we knew all that he knows, we'd probably ask for what he would give us. But we don't. But it isn't just his knowledge. It isn't just what he knows. It's because he loves you. Believe it or not... There are things he doesn't give you. There is relief that doesn't come your way. There are easier paths that he doesn't make easy. He, there, there are vegetables he feeds you, if you will. There are ways that he doesn't make it easy for you. There are ways that he disciplines you. There are things that he does that every good parent does for their children, not just because he knows what you need, but because he loves you as his child. See, God's goal is is not just about giving you what he knows. It's about showing you his love. In the New Bible Commentary, Peter Davids, he kind of alludes to this by saying this. He says, God's goal is not given to human beings what their own impulses demand. His goal is that human beings will learn to love what he loves. It's not that God does not want people to have pleasures, but he wants to train them to take pleasure in what he knows is truly good. But God isn't opposed to our desires. He's about helping us learn that we need to redirect our desires. We need to reorient our desires. We need, like our children, to grow up and and see the error of some of our desires so that we can emphasize and and, and live toward new desires. The root of our problem is not that we have desires. It's that our desires are often the only thing we'll ever live for. Even as we claim faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters, there is a better way. James isn't confronting us with this. He's not, in fact, his whole letter, 50 some commands, four, uh, right around 50 commands in, in about 102 verses. He, he's not about commanding us so that he can ruin our fun, so that in some way he can restrict our life. He knows that there's a better way to live this life. 
He knows that there's a better way to find our pleasures met, to to find our passions, our desires satisfied. He knows that there is a better way that doesn't end in wars and doesn't cause fighting and doesn't result in murder. He knows that there is a better way. In the book, Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer writes, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? Think about that. They could be miles, continents apart. Same fork tunes the same piano to sound the exact same way. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which one to, to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be. Were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship? See, I don't think James is calling out the disunity and the division that exists in the church so that we turn around and say, oh man, I got to work on unity. I got to work on, 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 on uh, getting rid of division. I think he's highlighting a problem so that we can pursue the source, the right answer. And as noble as it might sound, The way we arrive at unity, the way we arrive at togetherness, the way we arrive at peace together, it is not in the pursuit of some practice. It is in being tuned to our God. There is a better way. In faith, listen, in faith. Live according to the Lord's wisdom. This is what James has just called us to at the end of chapter 3. Live according to the Lord's wisdom. Reorient your desires to Him. Make Him your desire. And find your satisfaction and peace in Him and among His people. So, so non-Christian, person who's sitting here today, listening, and, and maybe you've been in church all your life. You've practiced religion all your life. But on the inside, you have never trusted Christ, but you've put on a show. There's no way you can knuckle down. There's no way, way you can white knuckle. There's, you, you got no power for this. So let me encourage you not to start by trying to fight for unity. Let me, let me encourage you to start by believing in Jesus. If your heart is not tuned to him, No matter how hard you try, you will not be united to God's people. Trust Christ. Trust Jesus as God's Son, our Lord and Savior. You've got to have this faith to be able to practice this faith. So start there. If if you have questions about that, if if you have thoughts about that, if you would like to talk about it, ask me. I told you I have a lunch to go to, but, but, but I'm telling you right now, I'll bypass that lunch. If you need to talk about following what it is to follow and trust the Lord. If you don't want to talk to me, you talk to somebody that's sitting next to you. Don't let this day, don't let this day leave you without starting in faith. That's the only way you'll know the unity, the peace, the satisfaction you desire. But for the Christian who's already expressed faith, who's already 
professing faith. Let me call you to practice that faith. That's what James is getting after. That's why he gives us so many commands. He's assuming that he's writing to Christian folks. He's assuming that these are people who should be able to respond because they have faith that leads them to respond. So practice the faith that you profess. Heed the advice of the psalmist. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. You want every one of your desires from the Lord fulfilled? Make him the desire. Make him the delight. Oh, there's so many people that abuse this verse and they tell you that the Lord will give you the desires of your heart if you just delight yourself in him. And, and they make it about, oh, well, just think good thoughts about him. Or I recently heard, uh, I don't remember where I heard this from, but I think it was Oprah running around talking about the Lord is something else. Like the Lord is thinking good thoughts about people. And what a crock. That's the Lord. That's capital letters in the scripture. That's Yahweh. That's the proper name of God. Delight yourself in Yahweh. Make Him the central focus of your desire. Desire Him more than anything else. Pursue Him more than anything else. And He will meet that desire. You seek Him and you will find Him. Listen to the words of our Savior. In Matthew chapter 22, He was being tested and... and, He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says in verses 37 and 30 through 39. And he said to them, to him, the man who asked him, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen and obey your savior. You say he's your savior. You profess that you trust in him for life. You profess that he is Worth more than anything else in this life because you know that we will be with him forever. So act like it. Obey his command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. Now I know as I'm saying that, there's not one of us that will do it perfectly. I don't. I wish I didn't have to say that, but it's true. And you won't either. But that doesn't mean that we give up. It doesn't mean that we can't strive. It doesn't mean that we don't pursue. And then did you notice? He, didn't, he, he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And, and Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. It says, seconds like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Where did our selfish de- desires cause problems within us and among us? A problem with God, a problem with God's people, and a problem in ourselves. You want to be able to obey these commands, get rid of your selfish desires. Quit pursuing what you think is right and good and follow him. Follow God. There's Augustine that that said he lived in the 300s. He was a, a church father that lived in the 300s. He talked about our love being out of order. And every one of our sins is love that's just being expressed in the wrong order. We love the wrong thing too much and we love the right thing too little. The same thing could be said about our desires. Our selfish desires lead us to backbiting, to division, to disunity, to all kinds of problems. Because we desire the wrong thing too little. Or, yeah, the wrong things too much and the right things too little. You see, the reality is, is that even those of us who profess faith need to continue to have our heart tuned to our Savior. It's not about what you want. 
What's his purpose? What's his mission? What's his desire? Jesus also says, there's another place you can listen to him and learn, Luke 9, 24. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We lay this life down. We, we quit pursuing the, the American dream. You know where the American dream lives, le- leads to? Disunity, division, hurt, emptiness. Not, not, not satisfaction, not joy, not peace. Instead of just being a hedonist in pursuit of these things and seeking after this pleasure, brothers and sisters, hear your Savior. Lose this life as you follow Christ and find your life. Reorient your desires toward Him. Just one last thought about this whole thing. As I consider what it is to be a hedonist, I I couldn't stop thinking about John Piper in his book, Desiring God, where he turns the idea of hedonism on his head and he talks about, don't just be a hedonist, be a Christian hedonist. So I went to his website because there's so many different ways that we could approach that. I was like, oh, I want to see how he defines it. And this is, this is how the website there defines it. I'm sure these are probably John Piper's words, but I, they, they weren't attributed to him. They were just posted on his website. This is what it says. Christian hedonism is the conviction that God's ultimate goal in the world, His glory... And our deepest desire to be happy are one in the same. You see, God is not about glorifying you, but he is about glorifying him. You're about being happy. Where will you be happy when God is glorified? He says these are one in the same because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Not only is God the supreme source of satisfaction for the human soul, but God himself is glorified by our being satisfied in him. Therefore, our pursuit of joy in him is essential. Listen, if we want to be all tuned to the same fork, we must all be tuned to the fork, to the tuning fork that is Jesus Christ, our Savior. It, it must be. It must be this. We must be about his purposes. And that will affect how we live in our families. That will affect how we, how we live at our works. That will affect how we, how we go about business in this world. The chief end of man according to the Westminster Confession, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In his book, John Piper, in in his book, Desiring God, John Piper changed that just a bit. He says the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Let me just ask you to stop and think about where you're at today. Think about your life. Uh, Think about the divisions that are there, the, the divisiveness that maybe rolls around you, the disunity, the brokenness. Now, some of that, a lot of that might be driven by others. You can't change any of that. But a lot of it might just be because you're living, pursuing your own selfish desire. As noble as it might look, as noble as it might sound when you say it out loud, if you are not in pursuit of the glory of God, In all of your life, in some way, you are living for yourself. And that causes lots of trouble inside you, around you, and between you and the Lord. James doesn't tell us this so that he can confront us and make our Sunday morning uncomfortable. I didn't preach this because I thought it was going to be easy. 
I'm preaching this and I'm bringing it to you because I know what James knows. There is a better way. Lay it all down. There is nothing in this life worth having if you don't have your Savior, Jesus Christ, first. Everything else leaves you empty. It will fail you. You'll only ever be dissatisfied. If you want to know, if you want to know your, your desires fulfilled, pursue him first. Let's pray.